Good morning. Our scripture today is um, from the book of Micah, chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This is the word of the Lord. Folks, I have a love-hate relationship with watching the news. Anybody got one of those? One of those love-hate relationships with watching the news? I, I love it because I enjoy understanding and analyzing and thinking about current events and the people that are shaping them. I, I like one of those people that I just like to know what's going on in Washington or Paris or Hong Kong. And fl- flipping through a hard copy, did you catch that adjective? Paper, hard copy of the newspaper has, has been part of my routine since I was a young child. Um, I love the fact my parents are members of this body and uh, growing up, my dad would often come home when he got back from work and we're at dinner and, and he would say, son, share with me something you, you learned in the news today. You know, and I'd try to think of the most complicated thing I could share to impress my dad. But, but there was a discipline in that of opening our eyes as a family. I'm so grateful for this habit to the fact that the world is a lot bigger than me, right? Or you or our little stories. It's actually why I'm trying to pass the same habit on to my boys. Um, Because I want them to know that that each of our little stories is actually part of a much bigger story of all God is doing in the world. So I I like the news for, for some of those reasons, but I could give you just as many reasons why I dislike it. Um, A member of our community group, our small group, one of my friends said it well last week. She basically said, I'm not sure man was meant to carry the cumulative weight of the sorrows of the world. Isn't that perceptive? I think she's right. Our, our, Our finite emotional capacity can't grieve all that is wrong all at once, all the time. And to make it even harder, I mean, let's be honest, what what do the vast majority of the stories in the news focus on? 
It's all the things that are broken and corrupted by sin, right? So problems, troubles, scandals, looming dangers. I mean, when, when was the last time you opened the paper and another great day to be alive in Richmond at the top of the, you know, no, it doesn't sell. Add to the fact that with all that pessimism, so much of our news today, especially social media, if we could even call that news, <laughs> is reported with a certain indignation. Something's wrong and it shouldn't be this way. Someone's at fault. Somebody needs to get fired. Heads should have rolled. Right? And we wonder why all our news consumption leaves us riddled with anxiety and simmering anger and deep hopelessness. More more than one member of our church told me, especially in 2020, that, that they had to actually stop watching the news because it consistently gutted their joy in Jesus. Some of us need to do that, at least periodically. The, the local and national headlines in Micah's day were even more dire than our own, my friends. The headlines were something like this, Assyria on its way, Babylon approaching, judgment unavoidable. That's Micah. Exile was imminent on account of Israel's spiritual adultery and social injustice, that the land was filled with with ripe, as it were, with wickedness. Wherever Micah looked, ungodliness just abounded. I I wonder if if you can relate to that. Does your world feel like that to you? Or maybe your family or our nation or your, your workplace or your school. Just ungodliness, wherever you look. The first half of Micah 7 begs a really important question. How do we live as the people of God in a godless society? Do you ever think about that? How, how, how should we live as the people of God in a godless society? Can, can anything keep us from losing heart or, or slipping into despair when, when we feel hemmed in, as it were, by, by wickedness? What do we do? do? Do we try to pretend that the world isn't such a bad place after all? Do, do we form a, a Christian bubble and shrink wrap ourselves and, and try to work to create heaven on earth? Friends, Micah 7 urges us to embrace a far better response, and that's this. Listen, we allow the faithlessness of men to drive us into the arms of a faithful God. That's how we respond. We, we allow the faithlessness of men to drive you into the arms of a faithful God. Micah wasn't ignorant in this chapter. He's fully informed. He's, he's fully caffeinated. He's fully aware of all the rampant wickedness about him, but, but he doesn't succumb 
to despair or bitterness. It's striking. Why not? Because of what I just said. The faithlessness of men drove Micah, pushed Micah, compelled him into the arms of a faithful God. And and I think there are two things we need to do to follow his example. First, point number one, we need to grieve the lack of godliness around us. Grieve the lack of godliness. On, On the heels of the judgment that Micah pronounced the Lord speaking through him against Israel at the end of chapter six, it really is remarkable that Micah doesn't personally respond with a big old serves you right. Or you guys had it coming to you. Or woe to you. He certainly could have said that, right? Given the Lord was about to punish the nation on account of their unrepentant disobedience, woe to you would have been entirely accurate and biblical. But what does he say in verse 1? Look there. How does he engage with the, the prevalence of wickedness all around him at an emotional level? Because remember, friend, God isn't just concerned with what you know or think. He's concerned with what we feel too. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Micah says, verse 1, woe is me. Woe is you, Micah? But last time I checked, (laughs) you're like one of the only godly people left. You mean woe is them? No. Woe is me. It's a cry of personal sorrow, a, a cry of grief, a, a lament of desire unfulfilled. Look, look at verse 1. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. So he compares his emotional state to a, a hungry or starving man who, who enters an orchard or a vineyard and is just gutted to find there's no fruit. What, what kind of fruit does he long for? Look at verse 2. What, what sort of hope deferred is making his heart sick? The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. The, the word godly, we translate it as godly, is, is closely related to the word we translate in Micah 6.8 as Kindness or steadfast love, it it speaks of covenant faithfulness, a loyal love toward toward God and toward neighbor. As Alec Motyer observes, the godly are who? Those God loves with an unchanging love and who love him back in return. None of those people are visible to him. And, And in a similar way, the upright, who are the upright? It, it describes a righteous man or woman who lives with moral integrity. So they're honest. They're honorable in all they do. They're not perfect, but they're running hard after Jesus. And, and Micah grieves the fact that, that such people are nowhere to be found. 
godly, upright. They've, they've practically disappeared from the land of Israel. The fruit of godliness and uprightness is gone. Why is that a problem? Why, why does that grieve him? Why, why does it prompt him to say, woe is me? Well, because God expects his people in every age, friend, to bear the spiritual fruit of righteousness in the form of thoughts and words and deeds and feelings that are pleasing to him. Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for the fruit. He looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. He looked for the fruit. He looked for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. Oppression. It's, it's why Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 16, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Or, or as Paul tells the Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the spirit, how, how do you know that the spirit of the living God is in you? Well, because I just get this warm fuzzy sometimes. No, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Which is just another way of saying that, that a Christian, by definition, is not a man or woman who goes to church. It's not a man or woman who believes God exists. It's not a man or woman who is more honest than other people. It's not a man or woman who has a Christian girlfriend or boyfriend or parents. A Christian is a man or woman who is united by faith to the Son of God, has had and continues to have their heart transformed by the Spirit of God, and lives a new life of submission to the Father as a result of all of that. That's a Christian. And that's the sort of person, Micah says, is, is nowhere to be found. Everywhere he looks, he sees spiritual barrenness and it breaks his heart, guys. Breaks his heart. Why? Because he longs, he, he earnestly desires for men and women who've been created in the image of God to, to live in glad obedience to their creator. He longs for that. Think about this. His emotional appetites. What are your emotional appetites? Well, Micahs aren't limited to material comfort or convenience or security. The, the, the godlessness all around him isn't just unfortunate or too bad as far as Micah is concerned. It's deeply distressing. It, it grieves his soul. Why? Because he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Not just in him, but around him. He, he longs for Israel to be exactly who God created her to be. For, for Yahweh to receive the worship Micah knows Yahweh deserves. It, it, be honest. Is that how you respond to ungodliness around you? Is that your response? Do, do you share the prophet's longing for godliness to abound in your home, in your community, in our, in our nation? 
Do, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? For Jesus to be honored? Or, as long as your individual life is relatively free from suffering, could you care less about how the people around you are living? That's the question, isn't it? The holiness and purity of the church, the body of Christ, is not my exclusive responsibility as a pastor. It's our collective responsibility. It's your responsibility, brothers and sisters. That, that's Paul's entire point. 1 Corinthians 5, go read it later today, when he admonishes an entire local church, not just the pastors, to guard and protect their holiness, their godliness, because that is how we testify to the life-transforming power of the gospel. It's a big deal. Paul knows it's so easy, still easy, right? To just show up on a Sunday, enjoy the service, go home, and take really no spiritual responsibility for anybody around you. And to do that for several decades. So easy. So I challenge you, friend, be honest. When? We need to feel the weight of this. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility. When was the last time you prayed for a fellow church member? Asking the Lord to, to help them fight for godliness in some area of their life. Maybe you need to back up even a step further behind that, right? Because it doesn't, Praying like that, start with investing in a friendship enough that you actually know where that person's battle lies. That, that requires more than going up and saying, hey, how's it going? Oh, great. Okay. God bless you. We have to go deeper. Hey, what was hard? Anything hard for you this week I can pray for? When a brother or sister in our midst is struggling with sin or, or falling into sin, Christian, it should grieve your soul. It should compel you to speak, to lovingly pursue, to do all you can to help them grow and change. Let's, let's be a church king's way that so longs to see Christ honored through our holiness. That, that we're compelled to pray the way Paul prayed for the Philippians. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May that be true in King's way. Here's the principle, okay? When we desire what God desires, we will always grieve what God grieves. You don't desire, you don't long, you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness in you, around you. You will never say like Micah when you perceive the prevalence of wickedness, woe is me. You'll say, well, 
as long as I'm paying the bills and click along great, um, blessed am I? <laughs> if godlessness is what you see, when you look at your coworkers, or your friends, or your spouse, or your children, my point is, if you love what God loves, it should be distressing. It should sadden you. And if it doesn't, and you're just kind of numb, you can safely assume something other than love for God, love for his people, has usurped the throne of your heart. Micah laments the godlessness around him in in detail in verses 2 through 4. Look at verse 2. What's the detail look like here? That, well, they all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. What a picture that is. As Leslie Allen says, self-centered ruthlessness has become the cultural norm. That the people around Micah are not falling into unintentional sin. Whoops, they're, they're plotting and planning for opportunities to, to take advantage of their neighbor. For selfish gain. Look at verse 3. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Translation. How drunk can we get? How how high can we go? How many sexual exploits can we achieve in our 20s? How much money can can we make and accumulate for ourselves? The very people, this is what Micah sees and grieves and laments, the very people to whom God entrusted a unique responsibility for upholding justice and righteousness in the land are, are denigrating it. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe and the great man, the ruler, utters the evil desires of his soul. Micah 3 in a nutshell. And instead of community being what? A, a source of hope and Help, spiritual encouragement. That's what it's meant to be. In the fight for holiness, what's community become? Look back at verse three. It's become a means of multiplying wickedness. Thus, they weave it together. We're We're not talking about just slipping into sin here. Israel is knowingly and willfully and deliberately and repeatedly perverting what God has said is good and right. That's what they're doing. And the least evil among Micah's countrymen, look at verse 4, is like a briar or a thorn hedge. So Micah doesn't just see the absence of good fruit. Notice that. He sees far more. He sees the the widespread presence of enmity and oppression. Anyone who gets close to this people, to Israel, gets scratched, impaled, and crushed. You, You ever been running or hiking and kind of slipped, fallen into a thorn hedge? It's not a pleasant experience. But I wonder if you can relate to the feeling. Does your relationship with your coworker feel like that? Or your child? 
Or maybe your spouse. Maybe you don't say this aloud because you don't want to get in the doghouse, but honestly, you feel like they are out to get you. They're not for you. They're against you. Micah concludes the first half of his laments in verse 4 by reminding Israel and us that Yahweh will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. That the, the justice she failed to uphold, Yahweh will perfectly uphold. That the judgment of siege and exile are imminent, he says in verse 4. And friend, the same is true of all today who, who refuse to bow to Jesus' rightful authority and and persist in unrepentant sin against God and man, that the Lord will hold them, the Lord will hold you accountable. Even if we have to wait till the final day to see it. He, He shares your grief and he will avenge every wrong that anyone has done. There's tremendous, tremendous comfort in knowing moral evil will not go unpunished. It's it's what enables us to mourn with hope, right? The end of the story isn't just more cycles, more yin and yang, more the force, the dark side, more, no. History is going somewhere, friend. We were singing about it today. We're going to sing about it later this morning. We mourn with hope, and yet we still mourn. Why? Because a a biblical response to ungodliness around you begins with a Godward cry of lament. That's the first step. Here's the second, point number two. We don't stop there. It begins with a Godward cry cry of lament, but what do we do on the heels of that? We hope in the God of our salvation. Hope in the God of our salvation. When, when the world feels so dark and evil and scary, that the support and the care of godly friends and neighbors and spouses and church members is an incredible gift. But you know, in Micah's day, even all of those blessings had been stripped away. You realize, people we want to trust and should be able to trust prove to be just as faithless as everyone else. Look at verse 5. Put no trust in them, Micah says. Why not? Verse 6, because a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Yikes. And here too, I think some of you know exactly what that feels like. That the spouse you thought you could trust the child you thought would never run, the, the, the friend you thought would, would never forsake or betray. Verses five and six describe a situation where relationships that should be secure and life-giving have completely broken down. They've broken down in society, friends, neighbors. They've broken down in the family, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, and and I'd simply say with Micah that the, the enmity of sin 
is particularly painful when it strikes close to home. You know what I'm talking about? So, now that we're feeling the weight of all that, what do we do when the godly are nowhere to be found? And the people you thought you could trust have turned against you. What, what do the people of God do? What, do? what does Micah do? Look at verse 7. This is what we do. We allow the faithlessness of men to drive us into the arms of a faithful God. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. That's how the people of God respond to a world of godlessness. And all the more so when that world is close to you. And I'll summarize it in four words, okay? Consider this my parting exhortation before I go on sabbatical. Four words. How do we do this? How do we hope in the God of our salvation? Look, wait, trust, repeat. Can we remember that? Look, wait, trust, repeat. Look, but as for me, Micah says, I will look to the Lord. The word for look in verse seven has the same verbal root as the word watchman in verse four. Which reminds us, Micah isn't describing a, just a, a passing glance. He's, he's talking about keeping watch on something. Staying focused on something. A, a deliberate and careful gaze. What's that? In, in the midst of human unfaithfulness and ungodliness, we look to the Lord by deliberately and carefully focusing the attention of our heart on the faithfulness of God. We look. And, and the word for Lord still in verse seven, is capitalized, I hope it is in your Bible, because it translates the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's, it's the name by which God made himself known to his, his covenant people, Israel. It's his covenant name. And it reminds us that the Lord with whom we have to do is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping kind of God. Who's, who's never forsaken those who seek him. And so when we're surrounded by ungodliness, especially in our own home, when we feel in a new way, just how much we're not in control of what other people say, think, or do, including the way they're relating to you, remember this friend, even your fiercest enemies cannot control where you look. Think about that. They, they can shout they can rage, they can email you, they can text you, they can stalk you on Facebook, they can clamor till kingdom come. But you still get to decide who will get the first and best of your attention. Who are you meditating on? Who, who are, you, are you focusing on in your life right now? Thinking about, pondering, you're at a stoplight mind drifts. Where's it go? If you fix your gaze on an unfaithful man or woman or on the person who betrayed you, you'll inevitably become mired 
and despair and bitterness. I've seen it a million times. And you know where else I've seen it? In me. There's only one life-giving alternative to all that. It's, It's to look to the Lord, friend. To look to the Lord, the righteous, faithful God who always keeps his promises. Looking to the Lord can be as simple as opening your Bible and beginning to read or, or pouring out your soul to God in prayer or saying help to God by saying help to a wise Christian friend. And if you feel like your mind is wandering, drifting back to what they did or what they said or what, what they're doing in the very moment when you're trying to look to the Lord, anybody ever experienced that? Well, then, very practically, try writing scripture or writing your prayers or praying with someone else or doing what I often have to do, singing along with a recording of worship music so that I can just be led spiritually. And when your mind keeps drifting like mine sadly does all the time, remember what a wise pastor friend of mine once said, okay? Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. (laughs) Okay, think about that, right? Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. In other words, struggling to look to the Lord is infinitely preferable to not looking to the Lord at all. Right? So what's that mean? We better keep struggling, (laughs) And keep looking and not stop turning to him and keep fighting because the Holy Spirit will help us walk in the good of looking to the Lord. Psalm 123 verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes. Look to the Lord. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master. As the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. We look. Second, we wait. Look back at verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. In other words, when we look to the Lord, what does Micah see? What do we see? Isaiah 64, verse 4, from of old, no, this is what we see, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Christian, who does God act for? Who does he act for? For those who what? Wait for him. Wait for him. So why does he make us wait for his salvation? Why not immediately restore godliness in the land? (laughs) Or make every broken relationship right? Or fix your marriage yesterday? Or make faithless men faithful? Why not, God? It's because God isn't a vending machine. Do you know what a vending machine is? Put in, now it's like, what, four bucks or something? (laughs) 
put in money, get out Cheetos. Swipe credit card, get out Coke. God, God isn't a vending machine. That's why he makes us wait. What is he? He's a wise and loving king. Wise and loving king. We're, we're not omniscient, guys. The facts we see threaten to sabotage our faith and fill our hearts with fear. But we do not know all the facts. Think about that. The weight is by divine design because it reminds us God is God and we're not. He, he wants the best. He knows what is best and he has all the power necessary to bring it to pass and, and hear this king's way, his salvation, his life-changing, heart-transforming, justice-prevailing, sorrow-removing, evil-overcoming intervention in the lives of men is worth waiting for, brothers and sisters. Why? Two reasons. Because no one else can do what the Lord can do. He's God. You're not. Second, because he has proven his commitment to our good by doing what? Laying down his life for us on the cross. The love he demonstrated there is what enables us to trust his heart even when you can't see his hand. So here's the key question. When you feel the sting of ungodliness, are you willing to wait? Are you willing to wait Friend, not not for the outcome that makes the most sense for you, but for what? For God. To wait for God. Listen, waiting for the God of my salvation is worlds apart from waiting for God to deliver my chosen or preferred form of salvation in a circumstantial sense, okay? In other words, the good news of Micah 7 is that God doesn't just traffic in salvation or dabble in salvation or deliver salvation. He is your salvation. (laughs) Do you see that? He is your hope and joy, and and peace, and comfort, and life, and deliverance, and fortress, and redeemer, and savior, and rock, and king. That's what God is. We're not waiting for him to remix the circumstance pattern that one day he'll make all things new. What are we waiting for right now? We are waiting for God, because you were made for God. And if you have God, then the world could be screaming in your face and on your computer and you can say what we sang earlier. It is well with my soul. That's all we need. To be honest, if there's a particular person you long to see grow in godliness, are you humbly waiting for God? Or are you weaponizing your prayer by arrogantly putting him on notice? Humble waiting doesn't dictate the timeline to the all-knowing one. We bring our request, right? We pour out our heart. 
But, but it doesn't tell God, we have a contract here and, and I find you failing to uphold your end of the bargain. As if we're God. We, we need to reject the laziness of spiritual passivity or resignation. That's not faith. But, but we also remember what? What's the, what's the bottom line here? Only God can make the godless godly. Right? The faithless faithful or turn sinners into saints. Can you do any of that stuff? No. All good things come from him. The, the, the father of lights with whom James 1.17, there is no turning or shadow of change. Only the Lord can build a strong marriage for you or a healthy church or an enduring friendship or turn the hearts of children to their father. So we look to the Lord and we wait in anticipation for God to work salvation for our good and his glory. Psalm 62, five, for God alone, my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I won't be shaken. We look, we wait. What's the last one? We trust. We'll end with this. The hard attitude Micah exhibits in the very last phrase, verse seven is so important, friends. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. What's going on? Genuine faith is making theology personal. Faith faith takes sound doctrine, the truth about God, the faithfulness of God. It, It takes it off the shelf and owns it in the heart. Notice, the God in the middle of verse seven becomes my God at the end because of Micah's informed reliance on God. Faith, trust walked him across that bridge. So he isn't just waiting. He's trusting God in the wait, see. He's leaning the weight of his unfulfilled desires on God in the weight. He's he's resting in the promise of Psalm 149 verse 19. God fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Listen, Christian, when you pray, God is always listening for Jesus' sake. He always hears you for Jesus' sake. Not, Not because you've held up your end of the bargain or stuck to your Bible reading plan in 22, or have been good lately. Why? Why does he always hear? Because the Savior you trust is even now interceding for you, eternally pleading the merit of his blood on your behalf. Because because of Jesus, you have 24-7 access to the throne of grace. That's what Mike is saying. What a comfort that is. To know that God isn't like, you know, every analogy falls short, right? A a parent that says, hey, I know you're hungry. I have to walk to another store on another part of this mall. And I won't be able to hear you and you won't be able to hear me. But trust me, if you wait long enough, one day I'll be back with the snow cone. (laughs) No. No. At all times, in all situations, all throughout the wait. God still hears you. Every prayer. 
And his hearing isn't a passive in one ear, out the other. He's hearing with an oath-bound, blood-sealed promise to act. And so we look, we wait, and we trust. We, we hope in the God of our salvation. It's not, here's the repeat, okay? It's not a one and done. Which step are you on? I'm on one or three. You know, it's, it's a pattern for the Christian life. It's how we relate to the Lord again and again and again. Why? Because even the godliest of men and women will inevitably disappoint you. Hear that. Hear that from your pastor. They're not the Messiah. They're not the unchanging one. They're weak like you, a sinner like you. They can't save you. They too need a savior. In other words, there's a critical sense in which we don't ultimately invest our trust even in godly neighbors, godly friends, spouses, sons, or pastors. Who do we trust? We trust the Lord. We keep on looking and waiting and trusting until he makes all things new. I think that is a fantastic description of the Christian life. What's the Christian life? Well, I'll tell you. Well, it's three things and then a fourth one. <laughs> Look, wait, trust, and repeat. <laughs> Look, wait, trust, repeat. That's how we live in the midst of a godless world. Whether that world is around you on the news, we're sleeping in the bed next to you. We don't pretend it's not so bad. We don't create a bubble for our kids and pull an M. Night Shyamalan village move and try to make them think there's no bad stuff anywhere. No. We don't surrender to bitterness or despair. What do we do, Kingsway? We allow the faithlessness of men to send us running into the arms of a faithful God. Again and again and again. Let's ask for his help to do that. Heavenly Father, it doesn't take much work to recognize this world is full of godlessness. Even our own hearts are exhibit A. I pray in response to that, we would follow the example of our brother Micah the way you led him so graciously. Help us to lament, to grieve godlessness, to sorrow what you sorrow because we desire what you desire. And then, Lord Jesus, help us to hope in you by looking and waiting and trusting and repeating. Do that, we ask, Lord. Help us to do that even as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.